Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Ortho Radio. I'm Nick Bertha. I'm one of the second year residents here at Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Uh, I'm here today with one of our hand specialists here, uh, Dr. Ken Taylor. Dr. Taylor's had years of experience in hand surgery, and we're thrilled to have him here today with us. Well, thank you, Dick. So today we're going to sit down and talk a little bit about basal or thumb arthritis. Uh, just in general, basal or thumb arthritis is essentially arthritis that's largely based around the trapezium down at the uh, base of the thumb. It's the second most common arthritis that we see in the hand affecting 20 to 35% of patients over 55 years old, second only to DIP arthritis. This percentage continues to grow as the population ages. This is particularly common in folks who have done extensive activities with their hand throughout their life, such as knitting. Most commonly, patients present with pain at the base of their thumb, as well as difficulty with pinch and uh, grip strength. Like most arthritic conditions, basal thumb arthritis can be treated non-operatively until patients can no longer tolerate the discomfort, and it's affecting their activities of daily living. We do have really good non-operative interventions, and patients can do really well using braces and injections for a long period of time. However, the good news is that when it gets to the point that they can no longer tolerate it, there is a wide variety of different surgical options that we can perform for thumb arthritis, and they all have really good outcomes. So I just kind of want to start here uh, with some of the simplest methods that we do being partial and complete trapeziectomies. So Dr. Taylor, is a partial or tra complete trapeziectomy isolated by itself something that you ever consider doing for patients? Well, I think, Nick, if, if you're familiar with the literature, uh, it would suggest that almost all of these procedures do equally well. And I think it, it really comes down to your own personal training, what you feel most comfortable doing. Uh, there are some patient-specific factors, of course, that would, would lead you uh, down different roads. I myself uh, have not done uh, either partial or complete trapeziectomies uh, in of themselves. Uh, they're certainly part of the other procedures, and, and, and there is literature to support their use. It's just not something that I've typically done. That's interesting. I know that everyone has uh, different preferences. Do you think that there's any downside to doing a partial trapeziectomy? I know that some people say that having subsidence into that kind of cancellous bone that still remains can cause issues. Is that something that you have seen or patients that have symptoms from that? Again, yeah, I, I, it's not a procedure I've done myself. Uh, being at tertiary care centers uh, my entire uh, hand surgery career, I have seen people uh, with that. And, of course, the people you're going to see are those that are having problems. So I'm sure uh, in, in, in appropriate patients with uh, activities that would uh, allow this, it's, 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 it's a well-published technique. I think you know, hit it on the, on the head with uh, the risk of subsidence and so many other surgical options that do very well. It's probably why its use is limited. I think one of the more common methods that we uh, see much more frequently is doing a ligamentous reconstruction and tendon interposition. This has been around for some time, kind of originally starting with doing for rheumatoid patients specifically to do interposition techniques, and then eventually it kind of got to the point where people decided to start doing uh, a ligament construction on top of that, and it's been going on for almost 50 years or more. Is the LRTI something that you find you do a little bit more? I know that you know you do a lot of suspension plasty. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's probably still the technique that most others are measured against. And I think due to its uh, longevity and, and its wide uh, acceptance, uh, it is still certainly in in your armament armamentarium. So yeah, so yeah, uh, it's something we would consider for sure. 
when you perform at LRTI, I know that there's a lot of different donors that you can use to kind of do your uh, interposition, the FCR, slips of the ACL, palmaris, longus. Uh, what do you find that you tend to use? Yeah, I think depending on the size of the tendon, I'll use either a, a longitudinal split or a full uh, flexor carpi radialis as, as my uh, tissue source. Do you find if patients have a prior procedure or if for whatever reason they have a deficient FCR, do you find that you tend to use something else or you do go to a different procedure entirely? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think not uh, being confined to any single procedure is certainly a benefit uh, in, in, in your flexibility. You can use other uh, other tissues for sure. I've uh, In training, I've used abductor pollicis longus tendon slips. Uh, you can use extensor carpi radialis longus if, if you're uh, comfortable going from the posterior side. I, I think those are far less common uh, options, and, and I think most hand surgeons now would likely go into another uh, technique, uh, such as a suture button suspension arthroplasty. But but those that I think I think what you're going to find is is the procedures all do very well, and and I think being flexible enough to move from one to the other uh, is certainly uh, in, in, you know advantageous. Sure. I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, especially with a condition like this, there are so many great options out there and people do so well with everything. So I know one of the things that that's been discussed before with the ligamentous reconstruction is the importance of what actual ligaments that we're recreating. And, you know, in the past, it was really thought it was the volar beak ligament, and now kind of more talking more about the dorsoradial ligament. Can you kind of touch upon your experience with that? Do you think that that's kind of rung true and that the dorsoradial is more important, really? You know, I think in the laboratory setting, uh, I think more and more people are accepting that as the primary restraint. But clinically, it's really hard to separate the two. You know, the LRTI and, and other uh, techniques that try to reconstruct the intermetacarpal ligament, uh, essentially, you know, would, would, would make you believe the volar beak ligament is intact. But when you're taking the trapezium out, you know, you're not really reconstructing that either. So, I don't know if the if the argument for you know volar oblique versus the uh, the dorsal radial collateral really makes makes a difference. Okay, uh, that's interesting. Um, so, I think one of the techniques that you tend to do more often doing the suture button suspension plasty. I know that this was originally developed actually as a salvage procedure uh, for patients that didn't have uh, competent FCRs or reasons or ways that they could actually do the LRTI since that procedure had kind of been uh, done prior to the uh, suture button suspension plasty. I know that there's been a lot of studies comparing biomechanical strength and metacarpal subsidence. Is this something that you feel you do see less in suture button suspension plasty versus LRTI? Do you think that it matters? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point, and 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 to be honest with you, there, there there's not a high volume of studies uh, using this technique. So that the ones that are out there right now are largely retrospective reviews, either at two or five year follow up. Jeff Yao out of Stanford has has been a, a leading proponent of of this technique. He's done the biomechanical studies comparing uh, the suture button to K wires in, in, a, in a cyclic loading model which may or may not be clinically applicable because you're, you're not going to cyclically load K-wires. But he has a couple of retrospective reviews out there. So, so the literature is really kind of sparse regarding that. 
we're fortunate enough that to be six years into our prospective study uh, looking at this technique. And, and, and while I really haven't measured the data as of yet, I think anecdotally, the subsidence is, is maybe not as important as we were led to believe initially. You know, I'd have to look at the grip and the pinch strength, which is, is what you're concerned about sure. with subsidence. But I think as far as patient satisfaction, uh, it may not be as, as important as, as we think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. I know you've had that study that's been going on for some time. You know, I'd, I'd love to see when everything's all said and done, kind of what things show from there. I think, it, as you said, it's kind of an interesting point. You know, we always talk about the subsidence, but how much does that really kind of play into the patient's actual outcomes and the way that they feel when things are all said and done? So... When you do the suspension plasty, do you find that you use any sort of different rehab method compared to LRTI? Well, I, I think the the potential advantage of this technique is you don't have the prolonged immobilization. You know, you're not depending on tendon bone tunnel healing. Uh, you're not depending on tendon healing that you would with the APL to FCR suture suspension arthroplasty, which is without the button. So yeah, I, I think... You know, moving them earlier is the advantage. Uh, what I've what I've changed uh, largely in response to the the debate of volar beak ligament versus the radial collateral is that I don't work on opposition right away. You know, okay. I I, I kind of want to let that tighten up a bit, and we're working primarily on uh, retropulsion, okay, uh, CMC extension, uh, so that when the patient bears weight on their palm they're not loading the metacarpal phalangeal joint. You know, they're really getting that full, you know, horseshoe weight bearing and, and not tripoding. And, and I think that helps satisfy two curiosities. We get the early range of motion. Uh, we're trying to let that, that capsular repair provide some protective stiffness. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. With the patients being able to actually do more earlier, I have to imagine that they probably are happier in that sense that they can do a little bit more right out of the gate instead of having on a, a cast for a period of time. Yeah, you know, when when we present these techniques, we're able to do it in an unbiased way. You know, I have uh, certainly no financial or personal interest in one over the other, so I try to lay them all out. I'll talk about trapeziectomy, uh, the different tendon reconstruction techniques, uh, as well as a suture button or arthroplasty. And uh, it's, 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 it's fun sometimes to really be an unbiased presenter and how many patients actually gravitate towards something that gives them earlier range of motion or, or less time in a postoperative splint. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I could imagine if I was getting this done, I'd rather be able to get out of there and start doing things sooner. I think just generally I feel, would feel better about the fact that I'm starting to rehab it earlier than having to just kind of wait to do anything with it. Right. And again, especially with comparable outcomes and at, at follow-up, you're, you're not sacrificing the final outcome uh, for the convenience of moving earlier. That sounds like a great benefit to me. Some of the other procedures that uh, I know have been done in the past for basilar thumb arthritis include things like arthroplasty. Is that with the silicone implants that were used before, I know that there were issues with synovitis um, and patients having fractures and so on and so forth. Is that something that you find is still done much today, or is that really fallen by the wayside? Well, I think there's less enthusiasm. You know, uh, there, there's been many different attempts at arthroplasty, whether it's a, 
a spherical implant or a semi-constrained or constrained implant. When they fail, it's, it's, it's catastrophic. And I think the studies that are out there are, uh, will report favorable outcomes early on, up, up to two, two years or so. But anything longer term, they just don't seem to have the endurance. Uh, you don't have the same bony fixation that you'll have in the larger joints like mm. the knee and the hip. And it's a very mobile joint that experiences a tremendous amount of loading uh, for its size and, and in a cyclic manner. So I think that's probably what leads to the failures uh, in these. Uh, it would be interesting to see some of the newer implants that are out there uh, have studies you know, clinical studies or, or biomechanical cyclic loading studies to see if there's this bears out. But unfortunately, those, those those papers have not been written. Yeah, well, it would be interesting to see when things actually start to come from more of that data with some of the newer uh, devices that are being implanted. It would be very interesting to see. What do you tell the patients that have had a arthroplasty done and that come in concerned about some of these possible complications that can happen from them, do you just let it kind of play out until they start having new symptoms or is there things that we try to do preemptively to address these? Yeah. Most patients don't come in unless they're already having problems. Uh, so I, I don't know if I've really had to address that in a prophylactic manner. I think if that would to theoretically happen, yeah, I I would just mention to them, you know, each any any implant arthroplasty has a shelf life, whether it's a knee or a hip or a thumb, and, and I'm not sure that our adult reconstruction uh, partners would really allow unlimited motion and and repetitive grip, you know, or repetitive loading uh, in their hips or knees. So there is there's always some activity modification, whether or not that would applied to the thumb CMC arthroplasties, really uncertain. I would suspect it would. Yeah. I'd, I'd probably recommend against you know heavy labor, things where there's a lot of pinching and gripping activities. Sure. But I've not had that clinical scenario present yet. Yeah, oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. I mean, I know, like I said, it's been done in the past. When, when you've seen these actually uh, fail, does it tend to lead to the point where you have to do more of an arthrodesis kind of procedure, or is there still a availability to be able to do either an LRTI or suspension plasty? Yeah. Uh, a, a CMC arthrodesis requires bone stock, and, and when these implants fail, it, they, they, there's a lot of erosion, whether it's silic, you know, the silicone implants with, with this, uh, synovitic erosion or is the metal implants. So the bone stock available for a fusion is, is, is the concern. And what you hope to have is, is enough metacarpal uh, left to suspend the joint. Sure. Okay. We were mentioning arthrodesis. Do you find, is there a patient population that you uh, tend to do an arthrodesis for? Yeah. So that, that for a long time was one of the mainstays for your high physical demand patients. Problem with that is the high non-union rates. And I think we all kind of f came to the same point simultaneously with, with seeing the, the unacceptable non-union rates and the problems we would have with that. There, there, there was a clinical trial comparing primary arthrodesis to the suspension arthroplasties, whether it's ligament reconstruction or any of the other varieties. And, and I believe they had to stop the study early because the higher non-union rates and, and even in the ones that were 
uh, successfully fusing, uh, those result, results regarding pinch and grip strength were not appreciably better. Uh, so I think some of the enthusiasm for those techniques have really waned recently. Yeah, wow, that's that's really interesting. You you mentioned the pinch and the grip strength. Do you find in kind of the study that you've done or in other studies that you've seen, has there been substantial difference between the techniques in the pinch and the grip strength? Well, that's another problem too with the literature is there's really no good prospective randomized trial out there. And, and I think what you're seeing in the literature is a lot of retrospective reviews or case series uh, without the randomization, uh, I think I think you have to get surgeons that would feel happy trying different techniques uh, in order to get the numbers uh, that you would require for that. And, and it seems like that with this uh, diagnosis, surgeons tend to have their favorites. So I think it would have to be some type of match control s- study, probably a multi-center design to answer that question. And it sounds like that would be a pretty challenging study to actually do and be able to get any real useful information out of. Well, you've got three more years on the program. Maybe we can do it together. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea. Uh, all right. Well, uh, one of the other things that I wanted to kind of address here is always the element of having a zigzag deformity. At what point we're seeing that MCP hyperextension deformity of the thumb, do you actually go and do a uh, arthrodesis procedure at the thumb there? I know that the literature often suggests greater than 40 degrees. Is that something that you feel is pretty concrete or kind of depends on the patient scenario specifically? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that it's the actual passive hyperextension as much as your ability to maintain uh, pinch without the, the involuntary collapse. So I think if someone's a little bit on the loose side, I think if they're able to maintain their pinch uh, without the MP joints involuntarily hyperextending, then, then I don't know that number is as critical. And, and, and we may find also or we do find also that patients who do not have that hyperextension initially may still have that collapse. And, and a lot of what our hand therapists are doing is trying to retraining people to work with their hands with their thumb less palmarly adducted. You know, as, as the deformity progresses and, and the, base, uh, the base of the metacarpal subluxates, you've got an obligatory adduction of the distal end, and, and, and that probably what contributes to the Z deformity, you know, the yeah. hyperextension at the MP joint, and just getting their thumb in a better position, those those patients have to be re-educated or retrained how to use their thumb. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of therapy that goes into that, but I'm sure that patients, again, would really appreciate if they can get that without having to have it fused. I'm sure they're a happy, a happy camper in that stance uh, if they don't have to have that fusion done. Yeah. So I guess kind of getting towards the end here, kind of touch upon all the different procedures. Would you say that in general you have any sort of algorithm that pushes you one way or other for performing some of these procedures? I know you kind of said you kind of lay it out for the patient, let them kind of decide with the information you've given them. Yeah, and, and, and this is largely anecdotal, but I think if someone has collagen deficiency, if they're Ehlers-Danlos, you may lead more towards a suture button rather than depending on collagen that may be hyperextensible and, and may be more likely to fail. I, I think the set in the setting of a previous surgery, you know, a failed previous surgery, I think, I think some of these techniques uh, lend themselves more towards a salvage option. You mentioned if, if they've already had the FCR harvested, yeah. uh, for instance. So, 
you know, I think I think the, the suture button or arthroplasty lends itself to being used as a revision surgery, but I think more and more you're using it for primaries as well. So I, I think I think the discussion with your patient has to be personal. You have to kind of get their thoughts, you know, what, what's important to them. And I think with other scenarios where multiple answers means there's not one good one, this may be a little different. I think we have multiple good answers. Uh, which one is the best, I think, is still a point of uh, argument. And, and I think ultimately it requires a, a multi-center, you know, controlled study. But those, those are hard to, to execute. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, thanks, Dr. Taylor. I appreciate you being here. I just wanted to open it up if there was anything else you wanted to touch upon uh, before we kind of close down. No, I, I, I think this is a common diagnosis, as you said, and, and we're, I, I did two procedures today for thumb CMC arthritis. I think it's important that we do spend the time uh, with our patients, that we set reasonable expectations, and, and if we can, try to individualize our treatment. Well, wonderful. Well, thanks for joining us today, Dr. Taylor, and sharing your knowledge about uh, basal thumb arthritis. Certainly a lot to discuss and many different really good options to go through. So really appreciate you taking the time. Anytime. Thank you. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in today with us. Please feel free to send us any feedback at orthoradio.nick at gmail.com. Until our next episode, so long and thanks.